the first time a white barber refused to cut my hair when I was in high school and told me that I need to go back and have a haircut in the township that I lived. I just thought he was a grumpy old man that just didn't want to cut my hair and said, good, do it somewhere else. I never put that down to racism because it was not taught to me. Welcome to Let's Get Proximate, the podcast that explores the stories, experiences, and challenges of others so we can learn to innovate, create, and collaborate with lived experiences different from our own. Join host Alex Allen and Callie McKee as they explore the power in proximity, leveraging the value of meaningful interactions and insights to disrupt false narratives and foster understanding that leads to real and lasting transformation. Let's dive into the latest episode and learn more about creating an inclusive future for all. This episode is brought to you by Cisco, an industry leader in technology innovations and solutions. With networking, security, collaboration, cloud management, and more, Cisco helps securely connect industries and communities, creating the bridge to possible. Find out more at www.cisco.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Let's Get Proximate podcast. We're so excited to be with you today. I'm Callie McKee. I'm here with my fabulous co-host, partner in Shine, Alex Allen, who's going to introduce himself in a minute. I will say I use she, her pronouns. I'm a middle-aged white woman. I've got gray slash brown hair. I don't know what's going on right now. It's a little bit of both. Today, I'm wearing a black blazer and I'm sorting my Stevie Nicks t-shirt today. I've got a blue background with some awesome Lego creations, which I think our uh, guest is going to join me on a Lego conversation in a bit as well. I am a program manager here in the DEI team at Cisco, work with Alex Allen to help bring proximity, DEI skill building to leaders and teams across Cisco. So excited for this podcast and for our guest today. Just if you, this is your first time joining, two things. One, make sure you go back and check out all of our other great conversations we had with folks across Cisco and had amazing times getting proximate. This is a series of podcasts made possible and a huge thank you to our partners in 1X Customer and Partner Experience Engineering for sponsoring the podcast. And in this podcast, y'all, we dive, we deep dive into getting proximate to learning about each other. We're going to talk about how we approach conversations across difference. And we meet a ton of great people and learn about their lived experience. This helps us widen our lens, helps us collaborate, innovate, and lead more inclusively. And I could not be more excited to do that with you again today. So my partner in shine, Alex, introduce yourself and tell us what's going on with proximity this week. Let's go, people, my people out there, the audience. Let's go, y'all. I am so excited to be here this week with you, Callie, and our guest. And I'm not going to spoil the surprise, but I'm Alex Allen. I use he, him pronouns. I'm a black man. I have short black hair. I'm wearing glasses today and I'm wearing kind of a beige shirt and I'm in my usual room with Jackie Robinson over my right shoulder. And I'm just so excited, y'all. So excited for this conversation. We have an amazing guest today. But let me tell you what's been going on with proximity. We have been focused on the digitization. So yes, we are going to make some automated changes to the proximity program. We're going to have some automated matching. We're going to be able to have automated reporting. And we're also going to enhance the program related to our process. And so I'm really excited. The team's hard at work doing this. We are working with our Workday team. So shout out to that team. Shout out to our core team on the proximity working through the digitization process. So Callie, back to you. 
Oh, it's so good, Alex. And thank you for giving that shout out to our Workday team. Because y'all, here's the thing. When we do things like getting proximate, these are things that we require some, this isn't business as usual, right? This is stuff we got to figure out together. We've got to come up with a solution to doing kind of difficult conversations and things we know that really enhance our skills. So yeah, massive shout out to our team. I'm going to give a shout out to Chelsea and Z on our team and Brian, who are leading up this effort and really doing the work to figure out how this can scale across the enterprise. So massive love there. All right, y'all. I'm not going to keep you in suspense anymore. I am so thrilled to be able to welcome our guest today, our good friend and partner in crime, partner in shine as well, Jack Naidu. Jack is here with us today. Jack is a newly appointed HR leader for Cisco United Kingdom in Ireland. Congratulations on that, Jack. He's got 20 years of HR experience, and he joined Cisco 10 years ago to lead the Africa HR team. And 18 months later, he moved to the United Arab Emirates to lead the Middle East Africa HR organization. After six years in this role, Jack relocated to the Netherlands, and since 2020, has been supporting Cisco's North region, which is made up of our Scandinavian and Nordic countries. Jack's primary focus is supporting the business through some of the largest and complex changes affecting the technology sector and working with leaders in understanding and managing change in uncertain times. And I'm just going to add on this, Jack. This wasn't in your bio, but I'm going to also say that Jack has been a fierce advocate and ally for promoting diversity, inclusion, and equity in everything that he does and really embedding that into HR processes and the way we work with people. Jack is a proud South African. Born in the province of KwaZulu-Natal, is married to Denise and is the father of two daughters, Christian and Jolie. And he has a passion for reading, running, movies, and is actively involved in projects supporting food programs for the needy and mentoring youngsters. Jack, my friend, welcome to the podcast. Can you give an introduction to yourself, your pronouns and your audio descriptions, and let us just hear from you. Thank you for being here today. Thank you, Kelly, and thanks, Alan. It's so good. I was slightly nervous about joining today, and I heard it's the two of you. I was like, I'm amongst friends, right? So what could go wrong? I use the pronouns he, him. I do struggle with the audio descriptions. I'm going to go slowly, and I'm going to say something really controversial, right, that may come up as I chat a bit later. I identify as African Indian, something for you to think about, right? That's the difficult bit. The easy bit is I am a brown person with grayish black hair, probably these days more gray than black. I am wearing a gray shirt, I think. I'm almost colorblind and I'm sitting in my whole office and behind me, you may or may not see a massive, one of my largest Lego collections. It's the Taj Mahal. And also I, I tend to collect fridge magnets, all the amazing places I've been around the world. And that's just a little bit about me. Brilliant. We're going to dive into that, Jack, even more. And y'all listen, Alex and I really wanted to have Jack come on this podcast like I said, because Jack has been such an ally and advocate for us working on DEI in the space. Also, I just like to catch up with Jack and just where in the world is Jack Nadu at any point? Because he has truly been working with our partners all over the world and has some really great stories to tell. So Jack, let me just ask you, are you ready to get proximate? I am absolutely ready to get proximate. Thank you. All right. Woo! Let's go. Let's go. So I I just want to start off first, mate. Just tell us a little bit about your background, your upbringing. How did you become the person you are today or some early influences and a little bit about how you grew up? Good. Thank you, Kelly. And I know we don't have loads of time, right? So I'm going to cut out 
masterpieces and just share some bits that I think may pique the curiosity of our listeners. As I said in my bio, I am South African. So I am what we would call fought of fifth generation South African, meaning that my forefathers were the endangered laborers that left India in 1860, 160 years ago, and then were taken to South Africa by the British to work on the sugarcane plantations in South Africa. So KwaZulu-Natal, which is the province where the ships arrived, that's where my forefathers settled in 1860. And that then started the journey of the Indians in South Africa, right? And what was interesting about this journey, at a certain point in time, Durban had the largest concentration of Indians outside of India as a city. I think that may have changed over the last decades. I'm sure there's some cities in the US that may have overtaken Durban, but that was its claim to fame once. So grew up in South Africa, born in the 70s in what was then apartheid South Africa. I must say, I don't think I experienced the full brunt of the apartheid laws and legislative acts that were put in place. I think that was more on my father and my grandparents. It only hit me later on going to university, going to high school, university. Growing up in South Africa, I had no idea that I lived in a segregated country. Everybody looked like me, spoke like me. I went to school. The teachers looked like me. We all spoke the same language. So we were sort of cut off from the rest of the world. I interacted with anybody outside of my community. Such was the design of apartheid South Africa, right? You had these racial segregation of areas. So I lived in what was deemed to be a South African Indian area. The outskirts of that was what they would call a colored area. And I must apologize maybe to your listeners for using these terms. Maybe they're not terms that we are comfortable with. But in South Africa, in those days, we referred to people as colored African, Indian, and white. Those were the four races. So by design, you had an Indian area, colored area, African area, and a white area. That was the design of South Africa. So growing up, I had no idea. This may shock our listeners. I never knew who Nelson Mandela was whilst I was in school. The first time I heard about him was when I was almost at the end of high school. And one of my teachers said, do you guys know who Nelson Mandela is? And he whispered it. And he said, go home and ask your parents if they know anything about Nelson Mandela, because the teachers weren't allowed to talk about it. We had one broadcasting network in South Africa, the South African Broadcast Corporation, similar like to the BBC. And so everything was propagated through the South African Broadcast Corporation. We had no idea what was happening. It's Soweto, you know, the riots that were firing up, the, the police that were going into township and suppressing the majority of the population. We lived in a vacuum. And the only time I really experienced that is when I went off to university many years later and I understood this is what it means, right? Did I experience racism growing up? Absolutely. But here's the thing. I had no idea that it was racism. I thought it was just somebody being rude to me. The first time a white barber refused to cut my hair when I was in high school and told me that I need to go back and have a haircut in the township that I lived. I just thought he was a grumpy old man that just didn't want to cut my hair and said, good, do it somewhere else. I never put that down to racism because it was not taught to me. So that's my upbringing. Lived in a guarded community and was sheltered from what was happening the rest of the South Africa and for my university days and then going into the workplace. Yeah, Jack, thank you for sharing that. I think it's such an interesting view or experience of race. We talk about, I think when people think of South Africa, that's what we think about. We think about apartheid. We think about the institutionalized oppression and systemic racism that built up. But really interesting to talk about how those bubbles were so, for lack of a better word, effective or 
such a stronghold that it really limited that. So when do you think, when you talk about that being kind of aware of your race and how it played into the larger cultural context of what was happening in South Africa, when do you think you had that realization? What did that look like for you? So there's two parts to that, and it's probably links into your second question, which we're going to talk about, which talks about my early work experience. So I went to what was classified as an old Indian university, right? So again, everybody looked like me, spoke like me. The only people of color were our professors who were all white, right? And it wasn't the type of open dialogue where you could engage with your professors. You just went, did your thing, they went off, and you had your friends, and you mingled. In the second year of my university studies, our university then opened up to other races, because this was what we called the new South Africa. So this was the South Africa. Nelson Mandela had just become president, so all of the barriers were starting to fall, right? And as a result of that, we saw an influx of African and colored students. Still no white students, but lots of African and colored students. And that was the first time I actually got to encounter, believe it or not, and this was like when I was almost 20, right, of uh, 1920, the first time I started to have meaningful conversations with people that were different to me, right? And yes, it might have been at a, at a very superficial level, talking about sport or competing, you know, with African and colored students. But it was the first time I was like, oh, there are other people that share this land with us, right? And the more I engaged, and quite a nice tie into proximity, right? It's getting closer and asking questions. I started to uh, realize, hmm, there's something different at play here, right? And I started connecting all the dots of my childhood, where I did experience encounters with people that were different to me, but it was a very different experience. So for example, all of the housekeepers in South Africa were African. Whether you were Indian colored, African or white, that was a job only done by Africans, right? You know, all of the garbage removal people were all African. All of the menial jobs were done by African. So we did see it, but no one took the time to understand why is that the case? I think I was gullible. I was naive. I was just a typical teenager growing up in the 80s. And strangely enough, in growing up in South Africa in the 80s, even though we were cut off from the rest of the world, we still modeled our life and our existence on the US. We were into neon colors and Michael Jackson and Houston. And I don't know if this is going to be held against me in any way. I love Ronald Reagan. I was like, this cowboy dude became the president of the greatest country in the world. I mean, we used to see recorded videos of him. I was like, this is the best president ever, right? Who become, from an actor becomes a president, right? And I was like, he's right. America is great. Everything is amazing. We even had the Michael Jackson jackets with the zipper. And I'm going to tell you a story about my name, right? I think maybe we can get to that, about tying to Michael Jackson and the story of my name. So we're still heavily influenced by the US, but also still be self-contained in terms of just keeping to your own kind. That was the apartheid mantra. It was divide and conquer. I said, keeping communities separately. So that's how we live. Oh, it's such a good example of why proximity is so important when you talk about. So we talk about getting proximate to other folks, but part of that proximity is also getting proximate to yourself and your experience. So I love how you talked about as you started to get proximate to other folks, actually then going back and looking at your own experiences and seeing how those were connected to some of this larger narrative, so to speak. Inter really interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. That was the first time. I think when I became acutely aware of race and how it was at play was when I started my first job. So I went through university. I majored in economics, accounting, and industrial psychology, right? I had no intention of ever landing in HR. The accountant was the way to go. I come from a, uh, a family background. And it's interesting when I talk to Indian colleagues all around the world, they tell me that's one thing that Indian families have in common 
is that from a very young age, our parents want us to become doctors, lawyers, and accountants. And in South Africa, it is very much the same. So I chose the accounting route because I was good at numbers. Math was my strength. So went to university, got a BCom degree in accounting, economics, and industrial psychology. Started working in a bank because my brother worked in a bank and he said, oh, why don't you come and join me? So I started in a retail bank in South Africa that was later acquired by a big British bank. And th that actually, if I think about a pivotal moment in my life, that's when, as I said, I became acutely aware and I realized that, wait a minute, something's not right because all of a sudden I felt, I don't often use the term victim, but I was like, mm. again, reflecting. Years later, I was a victim of lots of things that had happened, right? And if I may, I don't know if you have another question because I'd like, I could go straight into it and tell you what the early years was like in a bank in South Africa. Now, everyone, you understand why we wanted to have Jack on this mm -hmm. podcast. He's an incredible individual. And Jack, I relate to your commentary so deeply, but we are also so very far away. And so it's an interesting dynamic that we have around us both being Black men. Let's talk about your name. I know that you and I have talked about your name in, in, in conversations in the past. So I'd love to learn more about your early work experience. Also, let's share with the audience kind of the origin and also how that showed up related to your name, your specific yeah. name, and how that was referenced. Thanks for asking, Alex. So not many people know this. But I guess not many people at Cisco know this, that my name is not actually Jack, right? In some weird way, every now and then in Workday, my actual name pops up and it pops up in a way that I cannot actually use it. So more as an inconvenience. So for example, when Cisco was announced as a great place to work a couple of years ago in the US, we all received a little banner that we could use on our LinkedIn profile. And mine said, congratulations, Praveen Naidu. Cisco being a great place to work. And I thought, how inconvenient, because I could not post this on any professional site because nobody knows Praveen Naidu. Everybody knows Jack Naidu. So that is my name, Praveen Naidu. Ali, Alex, does that sound like a difficult name for the both of you? It does not, not at all. Okay. And there's a reason I asked, right? So this is the story. So many South Africans of my generation, my upbringing, we usually had two names, right? I often joke that we had a name that I, I was born as a I think this is important to the story. I was born into a Hindu religion and my parents being religious people back then, they, there was a certain thing they needed to do to name you. So they would look at a certain holy book and it would throw out an alphabet, right? So in my case, it was the letter P and then they would choose a name. So they chose Praveen, which I think is quite a cool name compared to what my brother and my sister got, right? They got some really difficult sounding names. I think we got the coolest one. So there it was on my birthday. I had a sort of Indian name, but my generation also had another name, right? Because, and we often joke, it was a name given to us to make white people feel better about themselves so we could use it when it worked. It was a side joke. So on my first day at work, it was interesting. So I had the interview and I was offered the job immediately. I mean, it was a clerical admin job, right? So they're like, you did well. Let's talk about start date. And I was thinking, what's going on here? Because I was really naive, straight out of university, no work experience going for an interview and I was offered the job. And the hiring manager then said, okay, can you start on the 2nd of January? I'm like, yep, I've got nothing else to do. And then he started completing what we would call like the onboarding forms, right? He looked at me and he said, what is your name? And I said, my name is Praveen Naidu. And he looked, he thought a while, and then he responded in Afrikaans, right? And he said, die as a snark sanam, which translating from Afrikaans to English means that is a funny name. And he said, but num yo, which translates to again, what does your mother call you? 
And then I was like, oh, good question. Then I told him this whole story, you know, that we have two names. So in my case, my name that my family gave me was Jackson because I was born in the 1970s and I had an uncle that named me after the Jackson Five. And as I said, that's what, you know, some of my friends called me Jackson, one or two called me Jacko, some even called me Jackie. And he considered all of those names and he said, again, in Afrikaans, Dias ni ordentlika naam, meaning that is not a proper name. And he said, I'll call you Jack. He put down on the onboarding form, right? That became my professional name for over 20 years. He just wrote it down, Jack. And I was like, mm, yeah, whatever. That was the start of the journey, right? And from that moment onwards, nobody in the workplace ever called me any of the other names. My real name, Praveen or Jackson, it just became Jack Naidu as my professional name, right? And people often ask me, you know, why didn't you ever change it at some point? Because we liked it. For me, it was more about the inconvenience. It was everything. If you own a property, I'm sure very similar to the US, it's as you registered name. So it means I would have had to go back and change things. And I was like, it works for me. And I remember giving a many years ago, well, a few years ago, I was invited by Fran to the US and I gave a mini TED talk. And I think my punchline at the end was that apartheid may have given me a name, but it most certainly did not define me or limit me, right? You know, because I took the name of Jack and I've got very little regrets professionally. Starting in a bank in Johannesburg to sitting somewhere in Amsterdam right now, 20 years later, not saying I've made it, but I've got, as I said, very little regrets and so much to be grateful for. And my name was one of those things that never, ever held me back. So Jack, I just want to go into that a little bit more. And by the way, should I be calling you Praveen or should I be calling you Jack? Jack works, Alex. I'm so comfortable with it. There's only two people in the world that call me Jackson. One is a friend in South Africa and my mother-in-law, right? And my school WhatsApp group, because that's how my generation keep in contact, is still through WhatsApp. So just over a week ago, I celebrated my 50th birthday, right? And you should have seen that group light up, right? From happy birthday, Praveen, to happy birthday, Jack, to happy birthday, Jackie, to happy birthday, Jacko. It was like five or six different names, right? But all referring to me, right? So the only people that actually still call me Praveen are my school friends, some of them, and some school teachers that I bump into every now and then. But professionally, I am more than comfortable with the name Jack. And that also, one more question related to that, Jack, is... How did you feel at the time when you were onboarding and you were telling us that story around how your identity related to Praveen or Jackson or Jack? How did you feel at that time when you were within that meeting with the person onboarding you around, you know, your name, which is core to our identity? Take us into that. And that's such a powerful question, Alex. My wife often reminds me, right, that I cannot use today's wisdom to address yesterday's issues or problems, right? So knowing everything I know now, you know, I would say, oh, yeah, I should have stood up for myself. You know, why don't I defend myself? But I, to be honest with you, as I said, straight out of university into the workplace, there's a word that I probably use too much and I shouldn't, but naive was the word, right? I had, again, no idea that this was racism, right? Or this was intolerance or discrimination. I just assumed, yep, okay, Jack, it is, right? It's on a piece of paper. I never knew that how he would have processed it or how respectful that would have been in terms of how it linked to my identity. Again, if I knew all of that and I went back into that situation, I would have absolutely said, no ways, right? That's my name. It's either going to be Praveen or it's going to be Jackson, right? But in that moment, Alex, it took me years to realize what had happened with the story of my name. 
and it was years in the same bank because this may sound crazy, but that was not the worst thing to have happened to me, right? I think that was just the start of my nightmarish experience being in a bank the first couple of years. And this naming thing happened while I was in a branch environment. If you can picture a bank's retail branch like you have in the US. The hardest part for me is when I joined the HR team of the bank that was supposed to be the safe place, right? Because this was the team that was driving change and transformation in the new South Africa. They were taking leaders. And that's when I really understood what it means because that's where I had people tell me, you don't deserve to be here. The only reason you are here is because of affirmative action. You don't deserve a seat around this table. You don't speak our language, which is Afrikaans. My manager told me, just know that the only reason you're here is because of the color of your skin. And he went on to say, and the only way people like me are going to go further is if I applied black polish to my face. Can you imagine a manager having a conversation, your first flight manager telling you that my days are over because I would need black polish, whereas you, irrespective of your competence or skills or experience, you're just going to be progressed because you're a person of color. And, and that was my journey in HR. I could write a book. I got called up once by VP for HR, who was offended that we had a team lunch and I used my fingers to eat. And he said, totally unacceptable. Everyone in the team complained about you. If you want to work in this company, you need to use a knife and a fork. So that's just some of the things I experienced, right? And the continuous reminder that you're not good enough. You don't deserve to be here. It's affirmative action practices. And that was my first couple of years in the HR division, right? And it was at that point, I came to the realization, changed it a bit, changed it completely. I was like, you know what? And this is going to sound very odd, right? but I know this is an open, honest conversation. I was like, all people are racist. That was my experience working in the bank, right? I'm like, they're all racist, right? The straight bit is after maybe a year or two, but hmm, wait a minute, that's not true. Actually, the guys are not so bad because they would invite me over to their homes. We would have a beer, watch some rugby, and they would go on to tell me how impressed they are with Indians because we are so intellectually smart. We get it. We know numbers. We know how to balance things. And they need more Indians. Don't I have a brother, a cousin? As long as they're Indian, we can hire them. We just don't want African and colored people in the bank. They would tell me that because they saw me as a mate now. And I was like, okay, guys are not bad. It's actually only white women that are racist because they were the meanest to me, right? And continued to be for the first. And then, you know, after years of that, I was like, no, nah, it's not all white women, it's a few maybe bad apples. And that was, I would say, probably the first six to eight years. I left that bank after 10 years, right? But that was the first six to eight years. And that not only shaped me to the person I am, I realized many years later when I joined Cisco, going through the Courageous Leaders Program, that I was still holding on to some baggage related to that. I thought I'd let go, right? And it resurfaced from time to time. And I could just not put a name to it, right, in terms of what I was dealing with. Say, so a white person cut me off in traffic. Even if I was driving in Dubai many years later, I could not understand why I would respond so emotionally to it as compared to anyone else. And it was only going through some very deep coaching, very, and I won't call it therapy, but deep coaching, some very honest conversations that was actually able to bring some of those emotions to the surface to recognize that I had been a victim of some pretty horrible racial injustices and I never dealt with it. I just suppressed it and I just moved on thinking that it's fine. It's fine. Things are going to change. And yet it took me, and I'm still on this journey, right? You know, I can be triggered sometimes, but I now know how to name things and I'm a big fan of 
Brene Brown and giving words and to things. So I think I'm in a much better place, but still on this journey, I don't think I'm fully recovered as yet. I have so much to say here. I'm going to pass it to you though, Cap, in just a second. This black tax that you're referring to, it's global. Yeah. And as you're talking through your experiences, Jack, I've had very similar experiences across the world relative to holding on to it, blaming myself, being confused and inspirational that maybe you and I can connect and have a conversation around these things so that we can maybe support each other in the future. And also this false narrative, the idea of the false narrative, Brian Stevenson, we talked about that probably about a year ago at Cisco Live in 2022 around these false narratives around people of color. And just the only way we can really support it or overcome it is to get proximate, is to learn about yep. different. So it's great. So let me pass it to you, Callie. Jack, this is incredible. Yeah. And I'll just say, Jack, thank you so much for sharing it. I was thinking of the emotional tax piece too, Alex. And if I'm speaking to folks who want to be better allies and advocates, what I want you to hear too is these small everyday behaviors that we might think are one-offs. We might think that, Jack, I'm that probably that manager that onboarded you, he probably didn't think two seconds about your name and changing your name after that happened. But what I want you to hear, friends, is that lasting impact, that weight, that heaviness that carries generationally even. And Jack, what you were talking about is trying to parse out, are there these people who are bad people or is it these people? And having that realization of it's the system. It's the system that is creating this narrative, these false narratives, these false beliefs. And though the only way to combat that is to, like you said, Alex, start to get to know people one-on-one and start to realize that, oh, this hurts everyone and that we carry this over and over again. So Jack, let me just ask you, as it relates to creating this inclusive culture, and you know, I know we're always talking about that. And we know too, that as we talk about this at Cisco, we can talk about social justice from many different lenses, that it certainly looks different in the US and it does in in other countries and other regions as well. When we look at this, what do you see are some of the barriers when we think about creating this inclusive culture or creating this culture where everybody can show up and be their best selves, their most authentic selves and contribute? What do you think are some of the barriers that we're still struggling with? Certainly some of the things you talked about. I think you talked about affirmative action, which is, of course, still something, unfortunately, we're still talking about some of those same narratives. That's a fully loaded question, right, Kelly, because it feels like there's so many, right? Let's speak a bit about proximity. And the, the good thing is I've shared this with you and Alex in the past, right? Because I believe that proximity on its own, it's not enough, right? And uh, if you think about Stevenson, who I'm so glad I had the pleasure of bumping into in the US all those years ago and we invited him. If you read his book, listen to his story, when he became aware that there were these injustices, right? That's the knowledge part, right? And become aware of something. He was moved to action. And I always felt that was what was missing with the earliest version of proximity. And I think I shared this with Alex because I was putting myself out there, having proximity conversations. And very soon I realized that many of the leaders or few of the leaders I was engaging with were very curious about life in apartheid South Africa, right? Lots of questions because it's largely unknown, even in Europe. So I was putting my story out there, sharing, and they were like, oh, that's interesting. That's so sad. That's disappointing. But there's nothing that came after that, right? So there was the knowledge. There was maybe some empathy, but the action part was the part that's missing. And I still think, you know, and we, 
I think, Ali, you facilitated the a session, I think, probably almost want to say maybe even two years ago. I can't remember who the speaker was, you know, took us through this model, right? The knowledge action. Oh, that, Rachel Cargo was a speaker. Yeah, yes. And one of the most powerful speakers I ever had because I was like, that's it. That's it. So in my engagements with my leaders now, not only am I encouraging them to become curious, to learn about other people, I'm like, now that you know, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? This is the sponsorship, the allyship, the advocacy. How do you bring this to life? Because just knowing about something and not doing anything is not helping anyone's cause. So I do think we need to do that. The next bit I know we're trying, and Alex and I have spoken about this many times. It's all something that I struggle with. I just don't believe that we are diverse enough to make an impact. Like if I think about how things work at Cisco, at other companies, you know, if you and an organization that's 70% white, chances are both sponsors, both advocates are, are white, right? So if I think about a young African system engineer in South Africa that has aspirations to become an SE director, and if she looks up in the hierarchy, how many people that she is that looks like her, right? So how do you find that connection to people that can understand where you come from. And I think we still struggle with that. And I, I see it in the work that I do. And we see great stories of people progressing from the lowest level all the way maybe even to ELT. And you look at the sponsors and advocates and allies. More often than not, there's still people that look like them, right? And I think that's what I struggle with because whenever I talk to my clients about uh, DEI, it's always, let's start at the bottom, right? Let's look at CSAPers, graduates, interns. Like, no, it has to be at both ends, right? We need leaders that are people of color, underrepresented groups, and we need them from the top and from the bottom, right? Because I remember when I worked for IBM, they had this really cool mantra for, especially it was more with the female employees or female leaders. It was one hand up, one hand down. So as you go to the next level of the ladder, pull someone up with you, right? And it was beautiful and they lived it. And I was like, we need to see more of that. We see great examples of people moving into big roles but we don't see the succession planning. What's the plan for the people that you left behind? And I think this, it's a great opportunity for us to more in that space. 100%, 100%, Jack. And what I'm hearing too, as you talk is really, friends, is inclusion, very intentional inclusion. So we talk about conscious culture. We say it very quickly, it's conscious culture. It's all smushed together. And But pulling that conscious bit out is that because of what we talked about, about the harm happening, the harm happens. It's so ingrained. It's so built in that the inclusion has to be as ingrained, as built in, as intentional, as strategic, as pointed to be able to combat that. And I think that oftentimes we think as leaders, if we are ourselves, you know, and I'll speak as a white person, Jack. So if I feel like myself, if I believe in equality and if I believe in inclusion, that will be enough. Yep. And it's not enough. If what I need to do as an ally, as an advocate, as a person in the space who's curious is how does that translate to actions and how am I connecting that to folks that I'm working uh, with, sponsoring Ali. and all of that? Absolutely. I think there's another barrier I'd like to talk about and that is that we have a tendency to hide behind the data, right? Or the absence of data, especially in a mere level where we don't keep as much data as the US or other parts of the world. And I don't know where this boldness that I have comes from. My wife often tells me that I have more guts than brains because I challenge leaders where they say we don't have the data. And I'm like, forget the data, right? Just look at the directory and you see a picture on your fancy desk pro when you have like, you know, 30 or 40 faces in a frame because now that's what you have, big screen, right? 
look at it. That looks like you don't need data, right? And I've had the, the most honest conversations with leaders over the last couple of years where, you know, things where we go really deep, right? With me, I'm telling a leader, you don't need more women in your team. You need a brown person or you need this and you need that. That was something probably I wouldn't have done many years ago. It's something that I developed to do courageous leaders, but I just, when I believe in something in Dubai, it was a different dynamic. It was telling a leader, for example, oh, you know what? You have too many people of the same nationalities in a team, right? And they're like, what? How dare you? And I'm like, oh, again, let's look at your team. Let's go to the names. Where's this person from? Oh, they're from the same country you are. And that person, let's look at your last three hires. They all come from the same country you're from. So you are hiring too many people of the same nationality, just like you. Change that. And I still feel empowered to do that. And I think the really good thing about Cisco is that our leaders are open to these discussions. I never got on a call with a leader where I challenged them and they said, this is unprofessional or this is uncalled for. We refuse. They're like, hmm. It's just, you know, I know it's a cliche holding up the mirror. I don't like using that phrase a lot, but that's what I see as our jobs. And all of our leaders are open to that. And the penny drops, change happens. We've seen some massive change in, across some of the businesses that I support where teams are starting to look more diverse from an underrepresented groups perspective, not just from a male, female perspective. Jack, this is exactly why you're on or you're helping us lead our PNC enablement related to how we integrate DEI into the people strategy. You're speaking our love language here around, you know, don't let the data hold you back from driving the right intentions. And so we love that. I have a question for you though, just switching gears just a little bit. You have been one of the few people that I know that have worked in different continents at Cisco. So can you talk to us about that journey of working across three different continents, I believe? The yep. cultural differences, the inclusion differences. I'd love to just share that with our audience, if you don't mind. No, absolutely. So thank you. So as I see in my bio as Cali Ridder, I started in South Africa, but very shortly, I think 18 months, right? I was off to Dubai with my family and arriving in the Middle East, it was a shock to my sister because I knew very little about life in the Middle East and I knew very little about what to expect. I'll say this about Dubai. It is an amazing place. And Dubai is just one of the seven Emirates that make up the United Arab Emirates. So Amazing place, you know, for families, but because I'm always acutely aware of how race shows up and diversity shows up, I was always you know, observing and I always sometimes felt trouble about what I saw, right? And I need to be very careful about how I phrase this, right? Because I'm not a race relations expert. In Dubai, for the first time, I saw an unequal society where everyone is not equal, right? There's a hierarchy. It's not published. And yet for some things, there are things published. For example... To my shock and horror, there was actually a salary guide on what to pay your housekeepers, right? And at the top of it, it had employees coming from Asian countries, Philippines, Thailand, Indonesia, what the monthly salary would be. And right at the bottom were employees coming from African countries. And that was published. So if you're to recruit a housekeeper, if you go, yeah. and I was like, wow. So that was the first shock. The second shock is like many people that lived in the UAE, I had a housekeeper that lived with me, right? And I remember the first time I needed to renew her visa, I took a passport from her. She was an elderly woman from Sri Lanka. And I, I said, I need your passport to apply to renew your visa. And I took it to our company PRO to get it done. And when he looked at the visa page, and I, it's the first time I actually read it, and it said occupation servant. And I was like, hmm, wow, never heard of that. This is five, six years ago. And I went back and I said, you know, how do you feel about this? And she said, that's just my job. I'm a servant. It doesn't 
mean anything. And I said, you're not. And then it's my wife and I having this conversation to say, because now you feel bad. Like, do we make you feel? And she's like, absolutely. And she said, this is just, you know, for visa purposes. So it was that. I must say, though, that Cisco was my safe place, right? Because when I entered the Cisco office in the UAE, I knew that I'm equal. Everyone's the same. I'm the role. I'm the HR leader. I'm partnering with leaders. But the moment I stepped out, I became very aware that lots of the people that live in Dubai, probably a few million that look like me, are all involved in sectors where people like me should be in construction, serving jobs, gardeners. So most of the labor comes from the subcontinent, right? It did sometimes put me down this negative spiral because I kept questioning, what's the difference between me and the person that's busting every morning, who's cutting the grass at, during the day at 50 degrees Celsius. Why have I been chosen to live this comfortable life? And there's millions other. And that's why I rely a lot on my faith. We haven't spoken about that because I, I do, I question a higher power in terms of why is this happening to me, but it's different for them. I just could not reconcile it that we could have humans having so different experiences. And that was a journey in itself. And coming to Europe, far more based on weird, far more equal society, right? Here's the difference. I go to restaurants, my wife and I, we eat us a lot. The people we meet, Alex, at restaurants, you know, servers, bartenders, they become our friends. They've come over to our house. We've been to their houses. We have meals together. So they work in a restaurant, but they're all studying to become doctors, lawyers, equal society. In Dubai, the service industries, the people that serve you, you don't see them at a certain point. Once the job is done, they're gone somewhere else and they reappear. There's no opportunity to connect at that level. And I know we don't have a lot of time because there's so many other nuances and I'm still trying to understand the culture. I'll say this to summarize my experience and it's been a short one. I don't believe in generalizing when people tell me Dutch people are like this or people because I, in my experience, it's the complete opposite. When we moved here, people said, oh, Dutch people are the unfriendliest most direct people. They just say what's on top of, they can be rude. We've had the most amazing experiences with our Dutch neighbors and friends. Yep. Pay attention to the noises and who you listen to. Jack, I know we've only have a couple of minutes here and, and I think Alex, I can speak for both of us and say we could talk to you for hours, but I know you have important work to do as well. Let me just say, we usually end with a little bit of a quick fire questionnaire. And what? Alex, maybe we take that first question and I'll take the last one and we'll do a shortened version of our questionnaire. How does that sound? That sounds great. So Jack, in this rapid fire question, the first question is, who was at your kitchen table? With whom do you laugh, cry, share, and process with? That's an easy one, really. It's my wife who's also studying therapy and counseling. So she is this white woman, right? That helps me navigate through some very pretty complex situations. We celebrated our 20th anniversary this year, so it's a big year of celebration. That would be my wife's. Beautiful. And tell us your wife's name one more time. Denise. Give a shout out for all that you do for I Jack <laughs> and the fam. So Jack, tell us, what, is, what does hope mean to you? When we say hope, what well, does that mean to you? When you talk hope, I'm reminded of something, right? And I'm reminded, I don't know if I'm sure that both of you have seen the movie, The Shawshank Redemption, right? Mm -hmm. Ooh, one of my favorites. The famous line, hope is a good thing, maybe even the best of things, and good things never die. When I think about hope, it's a good thing, it never dies, and as long as we hope for a better future, it can be achieved. So I'm also a very optimistic person, sometimes maybe foolishly so, but I always believe that good things will come, right? See, no matter what the circumstances, it's something that I live by, my faith adds to that, and so that's what hope means to me. 
Beautiful. Any one last thing you'd like to leave our listeners with before we say goodbye to you today? I think in its simplest form, forget the big words, proximity, getting proximate. I just think, Kelly, Alex, we just need to be kind to one another, right? I think we strip everything away. You know, that's what I got out of Brian Stevens. That is that, you know, he wrote an amazing book. He's a famous person, but he just decided that a little bit of kindness goes a long way. And that's what I teach my children. We have enough doctors, lawyers, engineers, maybe not enough, but we need more kind people in this world and this world will be a better place. All right. Officially petitioning for a chief kindness officer at Cisco and nominating Jack Naidu. And just say thank you so much. What a pleasure. Alex, any parting words here? Thank you so much, Jack. And love you, my friend. Love you, my friend. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you both for the opportunity, right? For thinking about me. I do love and appreciate that and love and appreciate both of you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Let's Get Proximate podcast powered by Cisco. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. This episode is brought to you by Cisco, an industry leader in technology innovations and solutions. With networking, security, collaboration, cloud management, and more, Cisco helps securely connect industries and communities, creating the bridge to possible. Find out more at www.cisco.com.